I'm going to introduce to you guys a very special guest that we have with us here today. Um, this morning, we're honored to have Kim Gagney in the house with us, and Kim is, is here representing Boys Town, New England, which is a foster care program, doing a lot of incredible work in our area um, and in this region, and so we really look forward to, to introducing her and having her um, just kind of represent what they're doing and tell us a little bit about that. We're honored to have her here with us, and so would you guys join me in welcoming up Kim Gagney. Thank you, Steve. Thanks so much for having me this morning. It's such a um, blessing to be here with you. Um, I have the honor and privilege of working with the foster families, some foster families in this church, and they are incredible, the best of the best. And so uh, it's extra special to be here this morning. But I just wanted to take a few minutes to talk about foster care and share with you a little bit about my heart for foster care and what I feel like the Lord's um, put on the heart of the church for foster care. So my journey with foster care started about 12 years ago, uh, maybe a little bit more, um, when a friend sent me um, the scripture, James 1.27, true religion, pure religion, is to care for the orphan and the widow in distress. And I, it just hit me um, at that time in my life. It hit me like a ton of bricks um, because I thought about all the churches and all the denominations that argue about all these little things, and the Bible just spells it out right there. True religion is to care for the orphan. And it wasn't long after that that I found myself going furniture shopping and in Jordan's Furniture, and I walked through the front doors, and there was this book. And at the time, that book had 498 kids in Massachusetts that needed adoptive homes. And instead of furniture shopping, I ended up in that lobby of Jordan's just flipping page by page by page, every picture, every story. And I started thinking to myself, where did the church lose sight of, of the orphan, of kids in foster care? Because many, many years ago, uh, babies used to be abandoned on the doorsteps of the church. And somewhere along the line, we lost sight of that. And I, I remember going on missions trips and seeing orphanages in foreign countries, but not realizing that that was something that was right here in our backyard. And so as our eyes began to be open to it, um, my husband and I, we went on to adopt five um, kids out of foster care in Massachusetts, um, foster and adopt. And the more we saw the need, um, the greater we realized the church's call to take care of this need. Uh, because the church is truly the only place where kids in foster care with trauma and abuse and neglect can come to the feet of Jesus and find healing, right? And so um, it was from that point on that I just started recruiting in the state of Massachusetts because I felt like we needed to speak for those that had no voice, those that were hidden behind the walls of a system um, that could not speak for themselves. And so we kind of stepped into this season of just going church to church to church saying, how can the church impact foster care in the state of Massachusetts? And we don't want to stop until we see Massachusetts look different on the map than the rest of the country. And so um, we're excited to be with you here this morning because I want to share with you some opportunities of ways that you can get involved in foster care. So some of you may have the Lord specifically speak to your heart about fostering. The need is incredible. There are 9, 000, more than 9,000 kids in Massachusetts right now in foster care, and 1,000 of those are waiting for adoptive homes. 
Um, so the numbers are large. And so if you feel the Lord calling you to foster care this morning, I'd um, be happy to meet with you in the back and tell you how you can get licensed. Um, when we went through the process, it was extremely painful, torturous. I felt it very hard to navigate. And so my goal is to simplify the process for you and make it as easy as possible um, to make sure we can get everything done for licensing. So I'm happy to help you with that. We have a class starting in March. Um, and then the second thing is respite homes. And if you haven't heard of respite homes, respite is families that can come alongside of families that are fostering and take kids for vacations. So foster families can have vacations or for a break um, or just provide emergency placement for some kids that are in need for short term. And lastly, just as a church community, because you have so many incredible families fostering here, and I believe that will grow, um, and as that grows, we, we need people that surround these foster families with meals, with babysitting, with um, help in any way. And so that if you can't foster at this time, there's still some things that can be done. Sometimes we have foster families that have need bunk beds in an emergency um, or need, you know, just dinner to be served once in a while just to get a break while they're caring for so many kids. So um, there's so many ways to get involved. I'll be in the back today and would be happy to help answer any questions you have. Um, but as your church takes hold of this, and as I've seen more and more families get licensed, um, just watch and see what the Lord does, because when he, when, when you see a community grab a hold of the things that are precious to his heart, things just begin to move. So I'm so excited for you all this morning. I look forward to speaking to you. To change the conversation in the world about the church. And that's what we want to do as well here at Bethany Community Church. So I encourage you to get involved. Um, we're, we're just, uh, this is, a, this is a, a double header today. We have another wonderful guest with us today who's not a guest. In fact, we have a coffee shop named after her, Aunt Sandy's. So Sandy Blatchley of the Philippines, a missionary to the island of Mindanao, Davao City, and Family Circus. They... I don't know what, how many kids they feed now, but they feed anywhere from five to 10,000 kids a week in medical care. And so uh, I just want her to share a little bit. Sherry's going to actually lead the conversation. I'm going to show you guys a picture of the circus. <coughs> and that's, uh, that's missing about half the room. That's taken from about half the room. And I got a chance to go there and be part of what they do. And um, do the next picture. This is uh, part of the feeding plan that they have when they realize kids are just a little too skinny or not doing well, then they provide food. And because we have a limited time today, I wanted you guys just to get a visual of that. But how many of you were here when Sandy shared about the prison ministry that she started doing? So we have such an exciting update. So I'm going to have Sandy share that. Homa is in the middle. It was my husband. We need the picture. Um, oh, okay. My husband on the right. His motorcycle stopped. He parked it, got a taxi. The taxi driver said, sir, are you a Christian? And he said, yes. And he said, well, I'm Muslim. And we don't know if that's fighting words or what over there. So we have to be very careful. And he said, would you visit my wife in prison? And so my husband went, and then after that, I started going. So I've been going for probably six, seven years. And she 
uh, home in the middle, the happy, happy one. I knew from just meeting her just briefly that there was something that she was not a Muslim. And I said, Homa, you say you're Muslim, but why are you so happy in prison? And she said, oh, because I watched the born again and they sing about Jesus. And when I hear the name of Jesus, I weep and weep because that name is so powerful in my life. So about six years ago, um, five years ago, she got pulled into the court for her sentencing because she sent, spent six years, seven years in holding prison. Then, so she got sentenced to life plus 12 years. The judge said, Homa Sali, you have not tried hard enough to prove yourself not guilty. That day was the first day that she had ever been given an opportunity to say anything. So she wept with me when I went out. She went back to prison. I went home and I said, God, what are you doing? And I said, I thought you were going to let him out. I argued with him. And he said, Sandy, I have a plan. What if I want Homa to go to the big prison for all of Mindanao so that you can go in and more women can come to know me? And I said, is that your plan? He said, yes, that's always my plan. So Homa's been in prison there probably six years, 13 years total, 14 years total. So at that prison during COVID, I could not be there. Homa started her own Bible study and was ministering to 20 women in, in, for Bible studies in prison. Last week, my husband told me, we've got information that Homa is being released. And so she's out, and when her husband came one day to prison, it's his drugs that she was in for. He came and he said, um, I need you to get out. And she said, I can't get out, but you just go and do whatever you want to do because I have a new family. And my new family is Family Circus. I'm going to go there, I'm going to live there, I'm going to work there. So that's what the plan is. Homa is coming out, and she's out now, and she will live with us. It was this church that gave me the money to make a safe house a um, long time ago when I thought she was going to get out. So that's where she will live, and it will be exciting to see. A letter was given to her accidentally to her brother who was in the prison. He w might get out soon also. He had been dead to their family for 16 years, buried and everything. They didn't know he was even alive, but he was in the prison a mile away. So if he gets out, he will come to be with us also. It's incredible what God is doing. Who is the other lady? The other lady, <laughs> my husband got the call at nine o'clock at night from Homa, I I've been released, can you come get me? It's two hours away. And so um, it was raining and so they kicked her out of the prison <laughs> and the other lady and said, you're out now, so get out. <laughs> And so they're standing in the rain for two hours. And my husband comes to get them, and the homeless says, can she go with us? And my husband said, sure. So comes to the house, and then the next day she says, my family can't come yet. Can I stay another day? And we said, sure. So um, my heart is to minister to the women that get out because lots of times there's nobody that wants to hire them because it's been drugs, or they are sent back to the same place that they got in trouble the first time. So just, it's what God is doing. Thank you, thank you. I just wanna share one thing. So Sandy in the Philippines has been a foster mom. 
She is a foster mom. Um, she has, I was given six, but I have four left. Okay. Two moved on, yeah. Yep. Two grew up. So uh, both parents passed away, and so she had these kids. So she is 16-year-old at home now. Two. I've got twins. Uh, twins, 16-year-old twins. 18-year-old so, son and a 25-year-old daughter. There's a need everywhere for foster families, mm, and there's much. a need everywhere for church to do exactly what Kim was talking about. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys for supporting Sandy. Yes, Buy so some much. coffee and donuts. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Sandy. I'm all set. Well, when the, when the headlines of the media get you down and frustrated and concerned, just read heaven's headlines. These are heaven's headlines that we're talking about. When God is doing something in the earth, you know that? He's doing something that's Christ-exalting, morally pure, and socially responsible. That's what God has always done. He never stopped. He never shut down. He didn't shut down in the pandemic. He never locks down. Amen? We're, we're, isn't it cool to get to be a part of what God is doing in the earth? The Bible says the disciples went, God working with them. So God actually partners with us. That's pretty cool. Well, I want to get into the sermon today, the message today. We're in a series called Eternity, and uh, these stories fit well in that theme. So today I want to talk to you about how to stop being so afraid of dying. Um, I asked the OpenAI uh, platform chat, GPT, I asked him this question. What does it communicate to the secular world and outsiders when Christians are so afraid of dying? And here's what... Um, they told me, whoever they are. <laughs> While there can be a normal fear of dying, Christians who are living in faith and hope are called to trust in God's promises of eternal life and not to be afraid of death. In fact, the Bible teaches that death has been conquered through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that those who believe in him will have eternal life. When Christians show a deep fear of dying, it can communicate to the secular world and outsiders a lack of trust in God's promises a lack of faith, and a misunderstanding of the nature of the Christian faith. It also can suggest that the focus of the Christian faith is on this life and the temporal pleasures rather than on eternal life with God. Instead, Christians are called to embrace the reality of death and to live with an eternal perspective, knowing that this life is not all there is and that our ultimate hope and joy is found in the promise of eternal life with God. This can be a powerful witness to the secular world and outsiders as it demonstrates a deep trust and faith in God, and a hope that transcends the challenges and difficulties of this present life. You know, the number one reason that people are afraid of dying, and we're afraid of dying, is the fear of the unknown. The second reason is the fear of suffering. And so that's why I said in my title, I said, so afraid of dying. Because I am not afraid of dying, but I still have a fear of suffering. <laughs> so I still deal with that. I always pray, God, I'm ready to die. Just let me die good. <laughs> so I'm thinking about taking up skydiving. <laughs> and now that I'm in my late 60s, I'm thinking about taking up... I, I, I do play golf, so that's pretty dangerous. So <laughs> uh, it's dangerous for the other people more than it is me. It's very clear that the Scripture wants us to know about and be concerned about the world beyond the Milky Way galaxy. Very clear in Scripture. Psalms chapter 
33, verse 13 says, The Lord looks down from heaven and sees the whole human race from his throne. He observes all who live on earth. Isaiah 66, verse 1 says, This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so, the, and so they came into being, declares the Lord. Then let's jump over to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens and even the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. The word infinity is not a biblical word, but it's certainly a biblical concept. The word infinity means boundless, without limit. Did you know we have a God who's without limit? The Bible says, my God shall supply all of your needs on earth according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You are serving a boundless God. You are serving an unlimited God. You're serving an eternal God. See, this is, what he, this is why the first two messages we talked about eternity is here and eternity is now. Psalm chapter 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. That's infinity. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. See, he's infinite. You, you, you still faint and grow weary because you're stuck in in, in infinity, infinitude. His understanding is unsearchable. This verse also uh, uh, highlights God's eternal nature and emphasizes his infinite knowledge and understanding. So, I want to give you three things today. First of all, I want to tell you that it needs to be understood that you are not equipped to live if you're not prepared to die. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for, Hebrews 11 1 says. And assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, now some people will tell you that the ancients were, were seeing the first coming of Jesus. But those who are telling you this evidently are, aren't reading Hebrews chapter 12 and 13 with any clear understanding. Because we read in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3, the writer implores us to endure. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then in Hebrews 12, 4, it gives this descriptive phrase, in your struggle. So he's, he's obviously not saying to the Hebrew Christians, and, and the, the writer of Hebrews is not saying to believers, not saying to you and I, that everything was taken care of at the first coming of Christ. That there's nothing else to look forward to. That everything has been done. Everything has been done. That descriptive phrase, in your struggle, tells us that. Then if you scroll down to the end of chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, we are receiving. We haven't received all of it. The kingdom of God is now, but not yet. Now, but not yet. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably in reverence and awe. Did you know that many movie directors shoot the final scene first when they make a movie? Many directors shoot the final scene first. Now, there, there's some practical reasons for that. For one thing, it's actors' availability. Uh, it's very important, of course, they have the star actors and the star performers in the final scene. So a part of it has to do with actors' availability. 
And uh, also, some, a part of it has to do with the fact that it's so important to get the last scene right. The movie can jump and start, have its problems, but the final scene has to be right. And so it is with you. The most important scene is the final scene, that you get that right, that you be prepared for the end, that you begin with the end in mind. But more importantly, the most important reason that, that movie producers often and, and, and directors do the final scene first is because they want to make sure the entire movie moves toward the ending. They want to make sure that everything that happens in scene one, two, three, and four it coincides, complements, and, 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 and is cohesive and, co and coherent with what happens at the end. I'm sure you can make the application of that in your own life. You want to make sure that the life you're living today is coherent with your ending. You want to make sure that you're moving toward the right ending. You want to make sure you're working with the ending in mind so that those directors work backward in order to create the best movie. They work backward. And I want, to, I, want to, I, want to, I want to say to you today, if you want to have your best life, you will also reverse engineer your life and work with the end in mind. God, like those movie directors, shows us that final scene so we can have a clear vision of our lives. By knowing how the story ends, we can create that co cohesive narrative for our lives. Anyone who, you know, one of the concerns and the criticisms of preaching the end, of preaching the second coming of Christ, of preaching the coming kingdom of God as well as the uh, current kingdom of God expression that we have. One of the criticisms is that if we believe this pie-in-the-sky stuff, we will, just, uh, we will just sit around and, um, and wait on Jesus to come. You know, if that's what you're doing, and I do believe there are people who are like that. You know, I, I grew up in a, an expression of Pentecostalism that at times... Um, I believe, disconnected some uh, people from the reality of the world around them, waiting on the world to come. I, I, a, a, a friend of mine went to a service one time where they had rapture practice. They jumped as high as they could in order to, uh, Philip, Philip Yancey talks about in, in one of his books he talks about him and his brother. They, and I'm not going to try to get into uh, um, deep into eschatology today and revelation and rapture and the tribulation and all the things depicted in the book of Revelation today. Uh, I've only got about 20 minutes left, so I'm not going to try to unpack uh, Left Behind series for you. But uh, Philip Yancey talks about. Uh, in, in, the, in, in those days, I will take a little rabbit trail here if you don't mind. In, in those days, we would have these prophecy teachers who would come in, and, uh, and they would have a big chart that would stretch across the stage, and it would show you everything that was going to happen to the end time. And, of course, the end was always Russia and China attacking Israel, you know. So uh, uh, Philip Yancey said that he, he, he went to college and he studied 
Russian, because so he he would be able to communicate with the Russian soldiers, and his brother studied Chinese, so he would be able to communicate with the Chinese soldiers. So uh, we've done some wacky stuff, uh, believing in the end time and the second coming of Christ. But I'm going to tell you that is not. That's not a fair accusation. That's not a fair generalization. People who believe in the coming of Christ, in the coming kingdom of God, and people who believe in the secure afterlife have done immeasurable good in the world. And we have two examples here today with Kim Gagne here today and with Sandy Blatchley. It is not true that being heavenly-minded makes you less earthly good. No, not at all. For the scripture says, only, uh, the scripture says, lay not up for your treasures on, he- on earth where, wrath, where must and wrath is corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt nor thieves break in and steal. When, when you are taking care of foster children, <laughs> I, just, I will tell you, she didn't tell you this, but you're not laying up treasures on earth when you're doing that. <laughs> When you, are, when you are feeding the poor in Philippines, you're not laying up treasures on earth. Uh, one, of the things, uh, one of the things I learned about Sandy Blatchley um, uh, is, uh, is I can't take her to a nice restaurant. She, she just doesn't want to. She looks at the prices on the menus and she thinks of how many hungry children she could feed without money. You know where her and, her and Daryl, when they come to my house, they want to go to McDonald's. And, and, and they want to go to McDonald's for two reasons. Because Daryl is addicted to McDonald's food. That's one thing which I don't understand, Sandy. I don't understand that. But, but, but the, 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 you know, they go to McDonald's and they order Happy Meals because Happy Meals has a little toy that they can take back to the children in the Philippines. So the customs must wonder, what in the world are you doing with all these Happy Meal toys in your luggage? <laughs> It's because they've got a vision of heaven. They've got a vision of the world to come. And they know this world, not only is it not all there is, this world, this world is, Paul, Paul said, Paul used the most gross description of the temporal world life. He said, I consider it dung. You can't get much more gross than that. You can't get, you can't get much more reprehensible than to look at the things of this world compared, when you compare it to the glories of eternity, when you compare it to what God has prepared for those who love him, to call it crap. That's as as, uh, crude as I'm going to (laughs) get. I also want to tell you today that you must resist the secular demand that only this world meaning fulfillment in this world happiness counts. The reason lately it's been hard to get people interested in eternity is because secularism has so overtaken our educational systems. It has so overtaken our media. It has so overtaken our public discourse. Secularism has so overtaken our public discourse that we are convinced that meaning, fulfillment, and this world meaning, this world fulfillment, this world happiness counts. I, I've got that phrase from Tim Keller 
in his book on death because Tim Keller is dying. So anybody who's dying is qualified, especially if it's Tim Keller, is qualified to write a book on dying. <laughs> and uh, he has pancreatic cancer. He's doing quite well with it, but he's, he's terminal. Ecclesiastes has an interesting verse. What, it, it has a bunch of verses like this, but I'm just, I just picked out one. Uh, I don't usually have this much scripture in a message, but I don't know, today I just, it just the way it came to me was a lot of scripture. I, I guess because I feel like eternity has so, been so discredited, and the kingdom to come has been discredited, and we've been so overwhelmed but because what we're coming out of in the world, what we're coming out of in, in Western civilization, we're coming out of what they call modernism, which is a preoccupation with materialism, a preoccupation with the material, the mechanical. And then we went into postmodernism that is, uh, is, uh, is, 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 a, is, is some attempt to, some attempt to uh, de- deny materialism, uh, but the problem with postmodernism is it has, if you notice this, with postmodernism, they, they give no positive ending. They don't know. They said, oh, we have to, dis- de- we have to deconstruct everything. We've got to deconstruct the government. We've got to deconstruct the church. We've got to deconstruct uh, uh, everything. We've got to deconstruct the academy. We've got to deconstruct everything. But I always want to ask them, well, where are you taking me? What are you going to, re- what, what are you going to reconstruct to replace what you're deconstructing, and they can never tell you. I mean, Karl Marx was fascinated with conf- with conflict theory, which is about he would look at nature and he would say, that, like the caterpillar and the butterfly thing. Well, just something's beautiful is going to emerge. We don't know why, but something something good's going to come out of all this chaos. We're going to we're going to kill everybody and some. No, God says. Jesus said. And, 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 and this is a verse that's been abused, I, I, I'll admit. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. But where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said, I'm going to tell you how this is all going to end. I'm going to, yes, I'm going to deconstruct you, all right. I'm going to deconstruct your way of thinking, but I'm going to reconstruct. I'm going to, I'm going to show you where this is going to end, and, and I'm going to give you proof and evidence. and all. I don't, we don't have the three hours that we would take to show the evidence that we... You didn't, you, if, you, if you're a true believer, you have not kissed your brains goodbye. You, you, have not, you have now gotten into your right mind. You have become a thinking person if you have truly have a deep faith that, that is well, uh, well informed. So I, I, I got lost there in my, my rabbit trail. Um, some people like rabbit trails the best. Pastor, you're just going rabbit trails. Forget all the notes. <laughs> but uh, Kevin Lombard here writes my sermon, so he, he gets upset <laughs> when, I go off, when I go off script. <laughs> so uh, let's go back to Solomon, Ecclesiastes. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Ecclesiastes 2.22. Now, that sounds like, forget eternity, just better, in fact, a lot of verses talk about that. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book that emphasizes the futility of life. If, 
if one only studies the book of Ecclesiastes, they will conclude a philosophy of life that coincided with an old beer commercial years ago that said you only go through life once, so grab all the gusto. You can't. But hold on. I started to say, hold your beer. <laughs> hold on. The book of Ecclesiastes is written from a perspective that is identified with a three-word phrase that occurs 29 times. And that phrase is beneath the sun. Under the sun. It's another way of saying it. Jesus' perspective was above the sun. Don't hoard treasures down here. I want to read this from the Message Bible. I quoted it a while ago. Don't hoard measures down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse. Stolen by burglars, stockpile treasures in heaven where it's safe from moths and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, the place you will most want to be and end up being. Wow, Eugene Peterson nailed it, didn't he? That's what we see in our guests that are here this morning talking about what they're doing in the world. It's not, it's not it, it, their otherworldly calling and philosophy is not causing them to be less socially active. It's causing them to be more socially active. Western civilization is thoroughly demythologized, I guess you could say, and neutralized human existence. We've adopted a purely mechanistic view of humans, which is that the universe is composed of purely physical matter and that all natural phenomena, including human behavior and consciousness, can be explained by the laws of physics and chemistry. In this view, we are just seen as complex machines with physical and chemical processes that do all of this stuff. Richard Dawkins said it this way. I mean, there's a guy that will inspire you. <laughs> He'll make you want to get out of bed in the morning. He said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect it. There is at the bottom no design, no purpose, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. What kind of world does that create? You know... The worst thing about a naturalistic way of looking at life, a mechanistic is what the, how, the, the, how the researchers say it. Uh, the worst thing is it, it causes some people to have a false sense of liberation. And that false sense of liberation is that I can make up my meaning. I can decide what is meaning. I'm telling you that is a tragic way of looking at life. If you want to find meaning and purpose... I started to pick up, I don't have an old black book anymore to pick up. But pick up the old black book, the Word of God. Get around people. Get around people who seem to know their way around it. And begin to build your life. This is especially important to you that are youth here today. You that are part of the, the, the student generation. And I know we're hearing the reports about the uh, prayer meetings quote, revival in Asbury University, Asbury College, and it's spread now to four or five other colleges. You know, hundreds of students, probably thousands at this point, 24 hours a day in prayer and worship. You know, I don't know what it all means, but I'll tell you one thing I know that it means. It means this, this idea that we have had, and including myself, I've sometimes gotten very cynical and believe that the idea of anyone believing in transcendent meaning was gone. 
There was just going to be a few gray-headed people and a few old people with arthritis like me are going to be sitting around in our little churches. But when you see these young people praying and singing to God, and I'm sure you've watched the videos, what is it? it tells me transcendence is alive. <laughs> transcendence is alive. Our youth, you students here today, you are not satisfied with a, with a mere mechanical, natural explanation for everything. You know, you know at the core of your being there's a God who created it all. You know at the core of your being there's a God who's calling you. You know at the core of your being that you need God to forgive you of your sins. You know at the core of your being you need God to meet you and you need God to show you what to do with your life and deliver you from the insanity. And you know that everything you feel is not of God but there are things that are of God and you want to discover the revelation of God. It, 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 Mark Twain's said that one time he said he said that the rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated and so the rumors of God's death have also been greatly exaggerated he is alive and well and eternity is real heaven is hell heaven is real and beautiful and hot hell is hot and awful there's a bonus too <laughs> to being eternally minded and it's, it's, it's a paradox. But you will actually enjoy your earthly life more. Imagine, uh, here's an illustration uh, that I got from Keller. Imagine that someone breaks into your house. And they've got a gun. And they tell you, well, I'm going to kill you. And they convince you that they will. Right? So there they are with their weapon and you, and you're alone. And they say, but before, before, before you die, I understand you really like to play chess. So before you die, why don't we play a lovely game of chess? You would enjoy that, right? No! <laughs> you would not enjoy a lovely game of chess if you knew that at the end of it, someone's going to blow your brains out. You would not be able to focus. Amen? You would not be able to focus on your game of chess or checkers. So, knowing you can't believe, if you haven't experienced Christ and salvation and, and the truth, if you hadn't got the full dose with all the boosters, <laughs> you know, if you, you don't know how, what a burden it lifts off of you when you know that your eternal and your, your eternal existence is going to be better than your temporal existence. And you know that death is not the end, it's the beginning. When you know that, it makes playing chess more enjoyable. It makes the activities of life richer. It makes your food taste better. It makes love more lovely. It makes your children more enjoyable. It makes the sun look brighter. It makes the blue sky look bluer. The birds sing better when you know that you're not facing annihilation or worse, eternal suffering. Hope. Hope is a good thing. 
Finally, if you only think about mortality and not eternity, you will waste your life. Dr. Raymond Moody is a philosopher, psychologist, medical doctor, best known for his research for the last 40 years or so, writing on near-death experiences, NDEs, and the afterlife. He, he, um, uh, he, he's, actually, he's actually the one who coined the phrase near-death experience. I always wonder, near-death, I think they die. How's a near-death experience? Well, I don't know. I, we, won't, we won't get complicated, right? We'll just call it a near-death experience. Anyway, people's heart stops beating, and they're absent from their body, like Eben Alexander left his body for seven days, right? So uh, there, th- there's um, at least a dozen well-known researchers now collecting all kinds of amounts of data on NDEs, and I think you'll find the results interesting. First of all, near-death experience almost always, always result in a heightened awareness rather than a less awareness. Dr. Alexander that I mentioned a minute ago, Dr. Eben Alexander, this is several, uh, probably 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, he, he was a, a neurosurgeon uh, himself, and he got meningitis, and his, um, his uh, outer, the outer cortex of his brain was completely shut down. And uh, doctors and researchers tell us that that's, that's how you have consciousness. The outer cortex of your brain is, is how you have consciousness and ideas and thoughts. And if it's shut down, you're brain dead. So he was brain dead. And so he described this, uh, this uh, amazing experience of seeing beauty and and a creature that seemed like God, and he, he's got a, you can read his book, uh, which I forget the title, but I read it years ago. Um, there's also the experience, uh, there's so many experiences, I, w- I want to give you a couple. Mary Neal was, uh, 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 a number of years ago, was uh, whitewater kayaking, and she turned over, and somehow she got her head stuck between a rock, rocks, and 20 minutes she was underwater. And during that time, she met Jesus, and Jesus told her that her husband had heart cancer. He had never been diagnosed, had no suspicion, and she came up, and she came back. I don't don't know. They resuscitated her, and she came back, and she told her husband what Jesus had told her, and he goes to the doctor, and sure enough, uh, she was, uh, he he had a rare form of heart cancer. Another guy that I read about uh, left his body, and he's over the bed watching everybody working on him. And uh, he he saw where they were, you know, after after they pronounced him dead, they're they're putting his belongings away, and he saw where they put his false teeth. So when he comes back, they could not find his false teeth. He said, "I need my false teeth." They couldn't find his false teeth, and he, and he said, "I know where they are." They were in a cart, in a, in a drawer, down the hall. Another woman, another woman went over the hospital and looked down the hospital, and she saw a shoe on a ledge in a place that no one could see unless they were in an ultralight or something. And she came back, and she says, you know, there's a shoe on this certain floor on the ledge. They go, and there it was. And there's so many stories like this. If, if, if science would be more honest today, 
and, and, and unfortunately, there is a great deal of dishonesty because, because of a, well, I won't get into why I think that's so, but if they would be more honest, they would include all of this stuff in, their, in true scientific pursuit. Because what, what is science, by the way? It's, I looked at it, and this is what I saw, right? It's empiricism. Means, empiricism means you look at it, you observe it, and you reach conclusions. It's not, it's not rocket science. Well, maybe it is. <laughs> let, let, me, let, me, let me wrap this up. Huge numbers of rep- people reported that in seconds they were able to review their entire life. Look up Howard Storm's surgery. Howard Storm was dragged by demonic creatures into hell. 70% of NDers can describe what was happening in the room after they died. I I talked about the guy with his dentures. Nearly 60% describe a being of light and love. People invariably report afterward positive life change. You know, you know what, what, one of the things I found very interesting is almost every one of them, almost everybody who came back from a near-death experience adopted some form of Christianity. Almost none of them. I didn't read any stories of anybody who became, and I, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing or trying to put down, I hope you don't take it that way, any other religion. Uh, most of the religions have have uh, virtue and, uh, and utility, right? But uh, none of them became Hindus or Buddhists. I thought that is fascinating. No, none beca- the, because almost everyone, almost everyone meets Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? That kind of, that kind of fits with the book that I've been reading for the last 67 years. There was a major study done on African Americans in pre-colonial times who recorded their near-death experiences. They reported angels with the Book of Life, and these, keep in mind these were not people with a monotheistic religion, and they didn't even know the Bible existed. They never had met a missionary, but yet their reports of near-death experiences, including angels and the Book of Life, the one thing that every NDE reports. Everyone that I could find that God is light and God is love. And that demons are darkness and hate. If we go toward light and love, we're going toward heaven. If we go toward God. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a famous pastor and theologian. And his wife died. And on the way back from the funeral, he had his four little children in the car. And of course, they're in pretty tough shape. A big semi-truck goes by as they're going down the highway. And he turns to his kids. He said, kids, you saw see a semi-truck? They said, yes. He said, did you notice that the shadow of the, of the truck ran over us? They said, yes. They said, he said, what would you rather have? The shadow ran over us or the truck ran over us? So we'd rather the shadow. He said, well, the Bible says that we will fear no evil, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We will fear no evil. He said, your mother didn't get run over by death. She got run over by the shadow. She's alive. Maybe you're here today. I would like the prayer partners to come. Please get in your place. 
Maybe you're here today and you need that eternal perspective. You know, it can happen in a second. It can happen in a second that you can move from this temporal, earthly, it's all down here. I gotta, I've got to get all my happiness in in the next now. I've got to go... I've got to get find my meaning on this earth. You can, you can make that transition in a second. I'm going to lead you in a prayer that will allow you to do that. In fact, let me say something about prayer partners right quick. Move on out if you want to be prayed for. Go ahead and move out even while I'm still talking. Just move out if you want to be prayed for. You may want to be prayed for something that has nothing to do with a sermon. That's fine. Your physical problems or financial, relational we're, we believe in the power of prayer. We believe that eternity invades earth and does miracles. But I want to pray a prayer for that, those that will cross the line of faith today. I hope that there's several in this room. I hope there's, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if it's though, as far as importance. If there's one, if there's five, that you would make that decision today. I'm going to go from a te- what we would call a temporary perspective, a, a earthly, temporal perspective to an eternal perspective and Jesus Jesus said I'm the way the truth the life let's pray let's stand please stand and then pray with me Heavenly Father pray after me please Heavenly Father I come to you I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior receive me as your child Forgive me of all of my sins. I take Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I believe that he rose from the dead. And I believe that he will give me life. And that life will be forever. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, I encourage you to come down to our prayer partners and be prayed for today. Come on down. Everybody that has any need in your life, Please come and be prayed for at this time.